Welcome to the Brattleboro Words Trail podcast. One of the things that I was always persuaded of as a writer was that you had to give some uh, happiness to the people who were reading your books. It didn't have to be frivolous happiness. You might be writing about a murderer, but still, some kind of delight. And I took it as an obligation. I think of myself as a working stiff. <clears throat> if I got up in the morning and uh, say to myself, well, great writer, what's what's gonna, what are you going to do today? I'd be paralyzed. So I duck the whole thing. That's the voice of novelist Saul Bellow speaking in 1986 at Howard Community College in Maryland. It's Bellow at his most cheerful and generously insightful best at a time when he was not yet overtaken by the multiple health issues that would deter him from public life later on. He'd recently met Janice Friedman, a graduate student who would become his fifth wife. He was living in Vermont for several months each year, finding a deep affinity with nature here and respite from his heavy schedule of writing and teaching and traveling between Chicago, Boston, and internationally. By the mid-1980s, Saul Bellow, the working stiff, had been writing acclaimed novels for four decades. He had won a trio of National Book Awards for Fiction, a record still unsurpassed, for The Adventures of Augie March in 1954, Herzog in 1965, and Mr. Samler's Planet in 1971. He'd won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for his 1976 novel, Humboldt's Gift. And also in 1976, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature for his full body of work. His life story fills two volumes. For the Brattleboro Words Trail, his biographer, Professor Emeritus Zachary Leader of Roehampton University in London, sums up his stature. For most of his life, he was the most acclaimed novelist in America, if not in the world. In 1994, the London Sunday Times asked leading authors and critics in Britain to name, in quotes, the greatest uh, of living writers in English. And uh, Saul Bellow came first in this poll. He was an active participant in public affairs. He spoke out on issues of foreign policy, race, education, religion, social policy, and the state of the, the culture. What made him great as a writer, I think, I mean, he had a number of great virtues as a writer. He had fantastic mimetic power, the power to see things perfectly, to catch what uh, Keats called a fine, isolated verisimilitude, the thing perfectly imitated. But he thought that this attention to surface things and the ability to bring them alive on the page would provide access to deeper meanings. When you're reading something that stirs you, you begin to imitate it unconsciously. Just as when I was a kid and I, I had seen a Tarzan movie, I would go home swinging through the trees <laughs> if, if I could manage it. So that when I read uh, Hemingway or Sherwood Anderson or somebody else like that, very influential in my early years, I would find myself uh, composing in the same manner, making up sentences. It was hot. We went down in the street. 
<clears throat> I sat down in a cafe. The waiter came. I ordered a pear no. <clears throat> it was terribly hot. I went up to my room. I couldn't breathe. So on. Well, you fall into that, you see. Later on, you forget all about these imitations. Later on, you feel that you have developed your own skills. And those skills are based on your own voice, which today is giving out. <clears throat> your own natural, original tone, which is what which provides the engine for what you're writing. He had great imaginative power, too. He could imagine himself into situations which he was quite unlikely to have experienced. He's especially well-known for creating a style that mixes the ivory tower with the street. I am uh, going to read some pages from Henderson, the Rain King. Now, I wrote this book, um, I think it was 1957 or 58. What made me take this trip to Africa? There is no quick explanation. Things got worse and worse and worse, and pretty soon they were too complicated. When I think of my condition at the age of 55, when I bought the ticket, all is grief. The facts begin to crowd me, and soon I get a pressure in the chest. A disorderly rush begins. My parents, my wives, my girls, my children, my farm, my animals, my habits, my money, my music lessons, my drunkenness, my prejudices, my brutality, my teeth, my face, my soul. I have to cry, no, no, get back, curse you. Let me alone. But how can they let me alone? They belong to me, they're mine. And they pile into me from all sides. It turns into chaos. However, the world which I thought so mighty an oppressor has removed its wrath from me. But if I am to make sense to you people and explain why I went to Africa, I must face up to the facts. I might as well start with the money. I am rich. From my old man, I inherited $3 million after taxes. But I thought myself a bum and had my reasons. The main reason being that I behaved like a bum. But privately, when things got very bad, I often looked into books to see whether I could find some helpful words. And one day I read, the forgiveness of sin is perpetual, and righteousness first is not required. This impressed me so deeply that I went around saying it to myself. But then I forgot which book it was. It was one of thousands left by my father, who had also written a number of them. And I searched through dozens of volumes. But all that turned up was money for my father had used currency for bookmarks, whatever he happened to have in his pockets, five, tens, or twenties. Some of the discontinued bills of 30 years ago turned up the big yellowbacks. For old time's sake, I was glad to see them, and locking the library door to keep out the children, I spent the afternoon on a ladder, shaking out books, <laughs> and the money spun to the floor. But I never found that statement about forgiveness. Bellows' acute observations of everyday humanity were drawn liberally from his own experiences. 
characters from his own life populate his stories, albeit under different names or circumstances. But as Bellow explains, his writing is fiction and not autobiography. Things that you write are in some degree autobiographical, but the first thing you find out about autobiography is that it's the hardest thing in the world to write. It's hard because it's so very difficult to be absolutely factual about yourself. At my age, um, you have a mind like a trunk where you can always rummage and come up with something interesting. Uh, and you have all kinds of projects in the trunk or in the attic um, or in the belfry. <laughs> but you don't write them just because you have them. You have to be, you, you can't just go from the idea to the page. You have to be stirred. When you write, you may draw on facts from your own life, but if they're not in harmony with your story, they're worse than useless. You just stumble over them. So you have to have a sound judgment and eliminate the ones that don't fit. Because every, every book, every story, has a sort of invisible musical signature at the front. And when you've written the first few lines of the story, those govern all the rest that follows. And if there's no harmony between those openings, between the opening and what comes subsequently, then you're just on the wrong track. And people won't read you because you can't carry their interest. People sometimes put on their thinking caps when they're reading a book and they feel this is a serious book by a serious writer. I'm a serious reader, and I must give this a serious reading. And the result is that they generally miss the comedy and humor of the book by being so very serious. When I wrote Herzog, everybody raised a cry, saying Bello is the intellectual's writer. On the contrary, I was poking fun at the intellectuals, and I was showing how uh, much a long university education culminating in a PhD could do to disorient you. <laughs> so that you couldn't handle the ordinary crises of life. Here's a quote from Herzog about dealing with what Bellow calls the ordinary crises of life. It's read by Larry Simons, one of Bellow's local friends in Vermont. I fall upon the thorns of life. I bleed. And then, I fall upon the thorns of life. I bleed. And what next? I get laid. I take a short holiday. But very soon after I fall upon those same thorns with gratification and pain, or suffering and joy, who knows what the mixture is? What good, what lasting good is there in me? Is there nothing else between birth and death but what I can get out of this perversity? Only a favorable balance of disorderly emotions? No freedom? Only impulses? What about all the good I have in my heart? Does it mean anything? Is it simply a joke? A false hope that makes a man feel the illusion of worth? And so he goes on with his struggles. But this is no phony. I know it isn't. I swear it. We met Saul in the 1970s. He had bought a rug or two from us. He was very low-key and just friendly. And at first, it almost didn't occur to me who I was talking to, even though I had read his books. We, we really just talked about rugs. He had a real love for Oriental rugs. 
Somewhere along the line, Saul and I probably started discussing a little bit of literature and philosophy, and I think it clicked with him that I was somebody he could talk to. I, I tried to stick mostly to asking him about his own books. One thing in particular was Herzog. I remember reading it as a, maybe an 18-year-old college freshman and being very impressed with the character. So when he told me that the whole book was a put-on, I felt kind of silly. I mean, of course, this was years later, and I was no longer emulating the character Herzog, but at the time I read it, I probably thought I should. <laughs> Saul Bellow was born in 1915, died in 2005. He was born in Lachine in Quebec, the only member of his family not to be born in Russia, the only member of his family to be born in the Americas. He lived in Lachine, which is uh, now part of Montreal, until he was eight, and then the family moved uh, to Chicago in an immigrant neighborhood called Humboldt Park. I was a child during the period of great American prosperity, the age of uh, Harding and Coolidge. Then there was the Great Depression which was terrible, but also very um, inspiring. You found out about life during the Depression. And really, there was no point in preparing for uh, a profession because dentists and lawyers and engineers were uh, on the soup line. So my father asked me what I wanted to do. And at first, I ducked him. I said that I would like to study anthropology, which he had never heard of. <laughs> but that was just a front, because what I really wanted to do was write. He brought alive a world which had previously, and so he felt, not had an adequate place in our literary culture, the world of first-generation American immigrants as they struggled to make it in the United States. He refused to call himself a Jewish-American novelist. He didn't want to be a hyphenate. He was an American novelist. He was finding a way to communicate what it was to be an American because the experience of becoming an American was at the core of American identity. Though he was the great chronicler of American urban life, he was also a close and knowledgeable lover of nature and the countryside. And this love of nature and the countryside came very early on, before the family moved to Chicago, and his memory of those summers were important to him and never, never left him. Bellow had country homes in upstate New York and Aspen, Colorado, before being introduced to Vermont by his fourth wife, the mathematician Alexandra Tulce. In 1983, they built a new home near Brattleboro, which quickly became Bellow's favorite place to be. He described it to Larry Simons as his real home, because this is where his books were. From Chicago, he wrote to his friend, the poet Robert Penn Warren, who also lived part of each year in Vermont, that seeing Penn during his next visit would be no small part of the happiness of being in Vermont. For Bellow, Vermont meant happiness. This house became for him a kind of refuge from the frenetic activity of his life, first in Chicago, then in Boston. He was writing all the time and teaching. He taught at BU as well as the University of Chicago. Um, the novels he wrote from the 80s onwards often engendered uh, controversy, were involved with difficult uh, subjects, and um, it was a place of peace for him in Vermont. The house that he had built was cut off from the neighbors. Uh, 
He once had Jack Nicholson, who wanted to make a movie out of one of his novels, came in a giant limousine to visit him. He, all the neighbors were very excited about this visit, but he couldn't get the limousine down the little track to his house. He would invite friends up as well. He wasn't hermit-like or without a social life. Uh, once a week, he and his wife, Alexandra first, and then Janice, would go to Brattleboro to collect provisions. And there he'd meet the philosopher Sidney Hook. He describes having meeting in Brattleboro, the art historian Mayor Shapiro as well. He was friends with Robert Penn Warren, who lived in Vermont, and his wife uh, Eleanor Clark, also a writer. Uh, the novelists Philip Roth and Martin Amos and William Kennedy came, and he'd invite uh, members of his family up as well. We started having dinners together at our house. Um, once at his house, several times in Boston. And we developed some friends in common who were kind of intellectually aligned with Saul, but very low-key people. Vermont is obviously a very beautiful place, and it has attracted all sorts of artists and writers and musicians going back, way back in time. And I think that people are very settled here. People are very comfortable being where they are with their present station in life. People are not out to impress you here. And I think that that is an important factor, especially for somebody like Saul Bellow, because he doesn't need to be impressed. He's grasping the real that he sees around him for his books. He's not trying to unmask uh, phoniness. He's trying to show what people really are like. And it's a different approach, I think, than a lot of writers have taken or a lot of people have taken. The best way I can give you a sense both of his feeling for the country in Vermont and for his time there is to read a, a bit from an essay he wrote in 1990 called Vermont, the Good Place. For the last 10 years, I've spent much of my time in Vermont. I have no near neighbors here where I live. The closest is a biologist from Yale who prefers Vermont to any college town and teaches science in a local high school. His wife designs and makes jewelry. Half a mile to the west is the house of the ingenious, extraordinarily inventive man who built my place. He and his wife, an obstetrical nurse, have become my friends. There are few townspeople out this way. Most of us are newcomers or summer people. No township would be complete, I suppose, without its eccentric squatter. Our squatter collects old heaps, cars and trucks. His huts, plastic fluttering from their windows, are surrounded by ditched machinery of every sort. His livestock browses on weeds or eats broken rice cakes trucked in from factory somewhere near the Massachusetts line. Enormous, long-legged pigs run into the road, looking as if they were wearing high heels. They invade the vegetable gardens of the people along the road, and they root in them. Some say that the squatter comes from a respectable family and was well-educated. In the old days, he would have been called a remittance man, or a gypsy, or a tinker. The property on which he squats adjoins a dam recently abandoned by the beavers. My wife and I arrive in the spring like Canada geese, sometime taking off again intermittently visible until the fall. The postman and the garbage collector have hard information about our comings and goings. Our roads... The whole township network were described by a visitor, a motherly old person from Idaho, 
who came here to visit her son, as in quotes, one green tunnel after another. From the perspective of a driver, shaded roads would look like that. On warm days, a walker is grateful for the shelter, although when the wind dies down, the black flies, deer flies, and no seams will be waiting in the hollows. When it rains, you're kept almost dry by the packed leaves, and you hear the drops falling from level to level. You'll become familiar over the years with each of the beeches, yellow birches, and maples, the basswoods, the locusts, the rocks, the drainage ditches, the birds and the wildlife, down to the red newts on the road's surface. In the nearest town, yes, people will be descending from their buses to buy baskets, maple syrup, aged cheddar, and knickknacks. But ten miles away, through the woods, you hear no engines. When the birds awaken you, you open your eyes on the massed foliage of huge trees. Should the stone kitchen be damp, as it may be even in July, you bring wood in from the cellar and build a fire. After breakfast, you carry coffee out to the porch. The dew takes up every particle of light. The hummingbirds chase away hummingbird trespasses from the fuchsias and the Maltese crosses. Grass snakes come out of their sheltering rocks to get some sun. The poplar leaves, when you narrow your eyes, are like a shower of small change. And when you walk down to the pond, you may feel what the psalmist felt about still waters and green pastures. This is what uh, Vermont was to Saul Bellow, a kind of paradisial refuge. It's also the place where he and his fifth wife most liked to live, their respite from uh, Boston. And it's also where their daughter grew up, Rosie, born in 2000 when the fifth wife, Janice, was 43 years younger than Bellow. Bellow was 84. The Nobel website says Saul Bellow was awarded his prize for the human understanding and subtle analysis of contemporary culture that are combined in his work. As for winning the Nobel Prize, well, at first it was very agreeable. Uh, you, wear a, you wear a claw hammer coat and a white tie, the king and the queen shake your hand, you dine at a palace, and uh, you feel a little bit like Cinderella. But then 20 people burst into your bedroom with cameras in the morning <laughs> before you've gotten out of bed or brushed your teeth or anything else. And you, uh, you realize that you're no longer your own master. That once you have received an honor like this, the public takes you to be its property, in a way. The only remedy is to hide from this. <laughs> Where occasionally when I give a sales clerk a credit card, she says, or he says, um, didn't you win in the Olympics about <laughs> about 20 years ago? And I said, yes, I was a swimmer. <laughs> I don't much enjoy being a celebrity. I didn't want to be ignored. I wanted my books to be read, but I didn't really care to cut such a figure either. Saul Bellow found the peace and quiet he craved around Brattleboro, but he was by no means idle here. In a letter to novelist William Kennedy, he wrote, Vermont is exquisite, and I am doing here what I am supposed to do. 
His essay, Vermont, The Good Place, is one of many dozens written in the last two decades of his life, along with reams of personal correspondence, as well as fiction. His stories continued to reflect and expand upon events and people in his own life, none more so than his final novel, Ravelstein, published in the year 2000. It focuses on two aging Jewish men reviewing their lives, their frailty, and the meaning of death. Abe Ravelstein is a version of Saul's old friend, Alan Bloom, who died of AIDS in 1997. They had first bonded at the University of Chicago. With age, they had each expressed conservative ideas and were at times accused of elitism, anti-feminism, intolerance, or racism. As far as becoming more conservative with age, um, I find an awful lot of my smartest friends have done that, and I don't feel that I have. So, <laughs> But there's a transition that I'm not really able to explain. Um, Saul was a great admirer of his friend Alan Bloom, and he took a lot of heat for his caricature of Bloom from uh, mutual friends and critics. But I don't think it's fair because uh, he never meant to portray these characters as those people. He simply used them as a basis to create his fictional characters, and that's fair game. I think Saul recognizes the contradictions in everything. It's always difficult to, to, to conclude I see that in so much of the um, the emotional baggage of his characters, they're 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 not sure. We aren't black and white. There there there's a lot of gray areas in all of us. That was true of his politics, and uh, and I see it so often in his characters. Sometimes I'm baffled uh, when I uh, hear people's impressions of what I've written, and I say to myself, "You always assumed you were a part of the human species." How come you can get yourself so completely screwed up and misunderstood? But either you can panic and uh, start um, making uh, frantic attempts to reform under the glare of his awful critical eyes, or you can just say, the hell with you. Uh, I know what I'm doing. If you don't yet, it's because you haven't given me an attentive reading. You have to balance these things between the attentive reading and the self-doubt. Here's a quote I enjoy particularly from Ravelstein. He was here to give aid, to clarify and move, and to make certain, if he could, that the greatness of humankind would not entirely evaporate in bourgeois well-being, etc. There was nothing of the average in Ravelstein's life. He did not accept dullness and boredom, nor was depression tolerated. The other character in the story, Chick, is a version of Bello, and a vehicle for writing about his own health. Bello suffered from Sequatera, a crippling neurological disease caused by a toxin in tropical fish that he ate during a trip to St. Martin in 1994. Its effects on nerves and brain function can be severe. Unlike his character Chick, Bello never fully recovered from the poison. I knew Saul when he was ill with that, and it scared him. He knew that he was uh, on the precipice at times of um, his own demise, I think, because he, he talked about that afterwards with a, um, you know, Saul was a guy who could often had a smile on his face when we were in personal conversation, but that was a solemn kind of a subject for him. 
the narrator clearly was Bellow, and he only is identified as Chick, but he's kind of that ever-looming presence that presents the story. And here's one of the quotes from him that I particularly liked. Death, how I imagined it, I said that pictures would stop. Evidently, I saw as pictures what Americans refer to as experience. I wasn't at the moment thinking of the pictures newly available, recently offered by technology, the kind of tour one now takes of one's digestive tract or of the heart. The heart, only a group of muscles after all, but how tenacious they are, starting to beat in the womb and going in rhythm for as long as a century. Through the lingering effects of the neurotoxin and through other indications of Alzheimer's mental decline, Bellow kept working. Philip Roth and a group of academic colleagues supported Bellow to continue lecturing until his memory lapses and anxieties became overwhelming. Gradually slipping in and out of lucidity, he was sheltered from scrutiny by family and friends. Bellow withdrew from public life to spend more time with Janice and their toddler daughter, Rosie, his favorite activity. In 2001, somebody came to us and asked us if my wife and I, knowing that we knew Saul, if he could be enticed to be part of the first Brattleboro Literary Festival. Saul agreed to appear. The the literary festival had chosen whatever their largest venue was because they knew that he would pack in a crowd, but he didn't want any part of that. He said he would only do it if he could do it at our store, Candle in the Night, because he was comfortable there. And we said, fine, we'd be happy to have that happen. And when we showed up that morning with Saul to get him in, it was packed like a New York subway car to the right to the front door. You couldn't even get in this building. And we have a big store, but it was it never had that many people in it ever. So we decided to bring him in the back way. We had a back door and an alley that came into our store. And we tried getting him in the back and people wouldn't move. They were they were really not willing to give up their positions, even though they were in places where they weren't going to see them. But they didn't know that. And I had to keep explaining to him that there was nothing to see if they didn't move because he was with us, at which point the seas parted and we were able to get him to the point at which we had set up a chair where he could greet people. And I think we all had the impression that people would kind of come strolling through and say hello, And but it wasn't like that. It was so packed. There were so many people. And his voice was very quiet at that point. He just wanted to lend his presence to help the literary festival, which was, at that point, a very generous gesture because he wasn't really up to it. But he did, and it got to where people started asking questions that Janice answered for him. I describe him as not having the energy to really speak publicly, He was uh, struggling a little bit with the uh, oncoming mental issues, but I I don't know that we're really aware of it. I think we just felt that he was aging and that he was was a bit fragile, both mentally and physically, and just didn't have that energy any longer. I understand how that condition comes on. I watched my father go through the same thing. And with really bright people, there's, a, I think, a moment at which they begin to understand it uh, until they can't. He was a very private person, despite his uh, public persona. And I don't think that um, it's an easy thing for anybody to accept 
especially somebody as bright and intellectually um, aware as Saul Bellow was. Bellow may have been mistaken as aloof or unreliable, when in reality he was very unwell. As Martin Amos put it, for a writer to lose touch with his rationality is a curse, just as Parkinson's would be for a surgeon. In his final few years, Alzheimer's tightened its grip. Bellow's youngest of three sons, Adam, describes him becoming sweet and childlike near the end. And with his complicated extended family rallying around, some long-standing rifts were at least partly healed. Adam told Zachary Leader, I like to think he became more plant-like, more like a flower, which he was always fascinated by, the life of plants and trees. I remember one conversation where he said to me, well, I guess it all comes down to Rousseau. And I couldn't wait to hear him explain what came down to Rousseau, but he never did. I never. I, the conversation trailed off in some other direction. It might have even been that day in, when I visited him in Boston when he was basically in a hospital bed in the house where he was living. I remember sitting by his bedside for hours. Uh, my wife and Janice were in the other room, and, and they were very patient about the fact that I really wanted to just stay there uh, and spend time with Saul. And a lot of the time he was asleep. He would, he would kind of wake up and talk for a while and then fall back to sleep. But at one point, he woke up and he said, um, how's your daughter doing? And I, I, he was referring to my younger daughter, Brittany, whom he had met at my house for dinner one time. And I said, oh, she's fine. She's uh, in college. Uh, she has a double major of Chinese and um, mechanical engineering, at which point he said, good, she can put the screws to the Chinese, and fell back to sleep immediately. <laughs> I don't know that I ever really saw him again after that. In spring of 2005, Saul Bellow died at his Boston home. But he loved Vermont so much that Brattleboro became his final resting place. At the Shur Hay Harim Jewish graveyard at Morningside Cemetery, chiseled into his headstone are the spines of books and the single word epitaph, writer. The most difficult thing is the occasional panic doubt that you have that maybe you're not going to be able to finish your project. And the most desirable is when you're either laughing or weeping yourself and uh, scribbling at the same time. That's what one lives for in this trade. episode was researched, produced, and narrated by Donna Blackney, with production assistance from Sandy Rouse of the Brattleboro Literary Festival. Mixing and mastering was done by Alec Pombriant and Guilford Sound. Our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Executive producer is me, Lissa Weinman. Many thanks to Saul Bellow's biographer, Zachary Leader, his longtime editor, Bina Kamlani, his friend Larry Simons and the Howard County Poetry and Literature Society for their participation and help. Please find all credits for excerpts from Bellow's work 
in our liner notes on the podcast page. You can find out more about the Brattleboro Words Trail, including how to get involved or produce your own story for the trail, at brattleborowords.org. Thanks for listening.